Welcome to the Living in Alignment podcast. My name is Amy Landry. Through a collage of conversations, here we distill mindful living and timeless wisdom within a modern, everyday context. Thank you for being here. The One Giant Mind app has continued to be an anchor for me when my meditation practice falls off track. It landed in my lap quite a number of years ago now and continues to be the first place I refer people to when they express the desire to learn to meditate and sit with themselves in quietude. Johnny Pollard is not only the co-founder and creator of the One Giant Mind Learn Meditation course and the One Giant Mind Teacher Training Academy, which both have, by the way, taught over a quarter of a million people from around the world to meditate. But most significantly, Johnny is an internationally recognized meditation and wisdom teacher who has dedicated his life to sharing ancient knowledge gained from some of the greatest living masters of our time. Johnny, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Amy. Studying and teaching for over two decades, today, Johnny, you travel the world teaching meditations, running workshops, retreats. And the foundation of your teachings stem from the timeless Vedic tradition with the core of your teachings, focusing on embodying our deepest nature of love, which I found to be a very rich message in your book, The Golden Sequence and Manual for Reclaiming Humanity. Mm. So with that in mind, Johnny, how did you land here? Uh, as in land, having this conversation with you right now. (laughs) Um, I loved your story in your book, learning about you from childhood. So let's, let, 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 may I respond in the most literal, literal way? How did I land here now? As in, how did, how did I come to arrive in the present moment? Because all we have is here and now, right? So how, how did I arrive at the capacity to sustain uh, a continuum of awareness of the present moment without it being obscured by a relentless uh, neurosis to try and control uh, the idea of the future? Because whenever we're trying to control the future, it's just the idea of the future. Um, because the future is only now in the making. And also to relinquish the, the, the regret and the, the weight and the heaviness that comes with an unresolved past. How did I come to arrive here and sustain a clear uh, vision and relationship with what I feel is the ever unfolding now? So that, that's how I, I'm going to take your question. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I arrived at that um, uh, by a, a process of um, relentless inquiry as a child, um, having very powerful and deep senses of what life is, what's important, what um, makes me feel whole and connected to life, where life has meaning. And I, I, I came to understand this through the stark contrast of many experiences that I was having that were generated by the environment that I was in. My childhood was filled with all kinds of experiences that uh, contradicted and tried to override the, the innocence of awareness that seemed to be just inher- inherent in me. Um, and I'm of the belief that we all come into this world, into this life, into our bodies with a degree of this awareness. And it is to what extent that is nurtured um, by our environment, namely our parents, our society, our culture, our teachers, our friends, our social circles, all of this kind of thing. To what extent is it, is it nurtured? You know, people ask me, you know, is it nature versus nurture? And I say, no, it's nature and nurture. We, but we require both. We have a nature and that nature needs to be nurtured. Um, and so uh, I had a, an awareness of my nature versus an, an emerging condition that was 
um, being imposed upon me. Uh, and one that I had a great amount of resistance to. I remember being defiant from a very, very young age, people imposing ideas on me about the way things were. This is just the way it is. And I'm like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> and probably appeared to be, you know, in, in moments very precocious, you know, and arrogant and just straight up defiant, insolent. Um, and from my perspective, which I maintain to this day, was just an expression of my spirit and an unwillingness to let the light go out. And um, furthermore, an intolerance for anxiety, which was the, the toxic byproduct of um, accepting indoctrination, you know, surrendering to indoctrination. I noticed that if I allowed myself to be indoctrinated, um, I would experience heightened levels of anxiety. And uh, what I was always conflicted or confronted with was the underlying need to belong, which is an inherent part of our um, survival, furthermore, our capacity to thrive. And so as a child, I would always be negotiating between the need to belong, a.k.a. the need to conform, hmm. uh, uh, or the, the need to resist indoctrination into some worldview that was in total contradiction to what it was that my heart and spirit were needing in order to stay alive and free and open. And so I was torn and aware of the battle that I was in as a child of, you know, do I sell my soul to belong or do I hold on to my soul but be isolated and lonely, misunderstood and a nonconformist and not only lonely but rejected, specifically rejected because I held, I held my ground. And this was a... Uh, a remarkable sort of rite of passage for me growing up that ultimately led to uh, a real certainty of self. Because when you make the choice not to conform, you want to make what you are making a choice to be count. If, if, if I'm not going to be belonging here, it, it, it better pay dividends because my need to belong is strong. There's a pull there that, you know, I'm not going to belong to something that doesn't receive me, that doesn't see me, doesn't value me, doesn't hold me. There is no, no language. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing for there to be any real exchange. And by the way, from, from this position now as a teacher, this is the narrative of pretty much every human. Right? And I think the only thing that makes me unique is that for some reason I was just absolutely relentless in my refusal to conform um, and started at a very young age trying to work out then, well, if I'm not that, what am I? Who am I? Well, how do I belong? You know, how, do I, how do I satiate the yearning of my soul to, um, to belong when I don't feel like I belong? How do I feel that? And it's been a, a, a remarkable journey of cultivating my capacity to turn my, my senses and my attention inward to develop a very deep and meaningful relationship with myself. And in doing so, discovered something extraordinary, which is that everybody is actually going through the same thing as me. It's just that for the most part, most people are, uh, have yet to confront the choice to relinquish the conditioning and obey their soul, obey their heart and, and wean themselves off that. And with that revelation, I declared that I would dedicate my life to working out a way that I could share what I know to assist others at the time that they realize it's time for them to do that to be that person, to support them through that process. So that's how I kind of describe what I do now in the context of the journey. Um, 
and you know people refer to me as a meditation teacher because that's probably the easiest way to kind of at the front door understand what I do but you know essentially um, you know what I do now in terms of where I find myself right here right now is um, facilitate a safe space for people to be seen to allow them selves to be seen by me because ultimately what truly liberates us is the, the the dynamic of being seen in our true light and being communicated to and related to and honored in our true light we can have all of the beautiful philosophical understandings about our nature and the nature of the universe and have all these wonderful ideas about how things should be and what our true spirit is and how the soul should be expressed and all of that. But it's not until it's embodied. It's not until it's simplified into an experience of innocent or loving, benevolent attention that is not occupied by desperation and neediness other than to serve, but with no desperation, <laughs> just to serve, that it actually comes alive and, 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 it, and does what it is that we desire it to do. And, um, yeah, that, that's what I've arrived at. So, you know, essentially people say, well, what is it that you do? I say, I sit quietly and I listen and I just see what's truth, what's true. I put my attention on what's true. And then the rest takes care of itself. <laughs> Everything just takes care of itself. And I think what you were mentioning about your state and your reflections and your observations as a child, I can't help but feel that perhaps whether we recall it or not, we all experienced that through our childhood until we were very programmed and conditioned, uh, you know, into adulthood, which is why we're kind of holding a lot of, our own behaviors and responses. Um, but when you spoke to your story, not only now, but even in the first episode of your podcast, which I love the one giant mind podcast. Um, and then in your book, I, I could really deeply connect to your story, obviously not the literal, how it unfolded, but the, the things that you experienced and really connected to. And I love how you speak to how you had a strong connection to like the rhythms and the seasons that were around you. So in tune with that and um, perhaps that's a really example of how that's sort of innately within all of us. And yet that connect, the connection to that is very much lost for most, would you say? Yeah, not, not so much lost, just forgotten. Hmm. It's always there. This is the good news, right? Is that it's always there and it's only to the extent that the impression um, from our environment uh, is deeper than the impression of the awareness of our own self um, that determines the extent to which we forget it and how quickly we can remember it. And the good news is that, you know, when we practice something like meditation and we have the direct experience of ourself in its most innocent and pure way, uh, without any kind of intellectual pretense, it's just an experience that's had when the senses and awareness is led into the place where we are, um, that impression is so much greater than any external impression can, can have upon us. And so the process of unraveling that conditioning happens quite automatically and quite spontaneously, restoring us to that childlike um, awareness that you're describing that we mm. do or have. It's just to the extent that the environment contradicts that is, is generally the, you know, correlates directly with the extent to which we forget and the extent to which you naturally are established in yourself. It's interesting because that kind of leads me into something I wanted to mention here. And that's um, some words from your book and you, you say, Arguably, the most powerful way we express generosity is through our attention, attention imbued with the intention of love. And I think obviously that probably goes without saying that's toward ourselves as well as to those around us. And when I read this and I highlighted it, it made me think of the great value of my relationship to my own son and my child. Um, 
can you speak to that and particularly how now your life is unraveling now that you are a father and how perhaps your practice has changed and how you're navigating the you know very real challenges of parenthood yeah it's my perspective that parenting is the single most important role that a, a human can um be thrust into <laughs> and you know i was i was always on the fence about whether i was actually going to have children or not um i always loved the idea of it and was always excited about the notion of it but always you know felt like you know you know the way that i am and how i was living my life it was just going to have me on the road all the time and it was just it just it seemed unlikely until i met somebody who was just you know made it an irresistible proposition mm -hmm. um and then uh so i i was kind of a little bit like i always had a lot of opinions about parenting <laughs> Um, and always, always considered it to be the single most important role because the way in which a human develops and, and, and creates the neural pathways to unfold their full potential is entirely dependent upon the impressions in which a, a parent um, lays upon their children. Um, and, you know, and it, it's a case of do as I do, not as I say. You know, the, the, the reality of mirror neurons means that our children are just watching absolutely everything that we're doing and they are becoming us. And so the role of a parent holds us into the highest level of accountability to our best self. If we are to wake up and embrace the full responsibility of being a parent, that's what it demands. And there are a lot of people out there that haven't yet fully realized this. This is not a criticism, it's just a commentary. It's just a reality that there are a lot of people out there that are parents that haven't yet fully recognized the extent to which they are structuring the, the very foundations of the way their children see themselves and see the world. They are passing on the legacy. And in some instances, they're passing on, uh, you know, a legacy of, of, of acute ignorance of the power and beauty of the spirit that exists within their child. And, um, and this, in my opinion, is the reason why little adults grow up, uh, little humans grow up into big humans and behave really badly <laughs> is because they're confused. They don't know who they are. They haven't become orientated towards a sense of purpose that takes into consideration needs beyond their own, where serving the greater need is actually the greatest source of fulfillment and expression of the human spirit. That is so devoid in our in our world at the moment and you know that's why i wrote the book actually was just to get that single message out you know as a matter of urgency we need to be you know imprinting on our children the the importance of them becoming very intimate with their feelings becoming intimate with their relationship to their desires to learning how to confront their fears to, um, you know, following what it is they desire to do as opposed to forcing our children into doing things that probably don't have any relevance to what it is they're really, how they're really wanting to express themselves. All of these things, having very strong boundaries for our children, like this is a massive one. You know, the laziness of parenting is probably the, the, the biggest problem, not holding solid consistent boundaries for our children because boundaries are the thing that ultimately give them the sense of where they are that the environment is safe they're being held and that they are you know seen and when they're seen and those boundaries move as they evolve and develop then they, they begin to understand oh okay i get it i get it i get it i get it there's logic to this as kids and teenagers they don't necessarily understand the logic of why you've placed a boundary around them no you can't do that and it's for your, for your safety or something. They don't understand it, but eventually they do. And when they do, they go, wow, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you taught me that. Because you see the kinds of people that had, didn't have boundaries when they grew up. And they're very confused, very insecure, very unsure, don't know how to make effective and accurate decisions for themselves that are about ensuring that they're going to continue evolving in a, in a sort of a wholesome way. 
they're constantly repeating the same mistakes because they're, they're confused. And that's because of the parenting, as far as I'm concerned. So you ask me, you know, how has it changed my life in every conceivable way? Um, and it has given me an opportunity to, to put everything that I know and everything that I've been cultivating as a, as a practice into the role of being a parent with our little girl. And it's giving rise to the most fulfilling experience in my life. You know, the, the, the relationship that I have with um, Safira and Carla, because I can never really look at my relationship with Safira in isolation of my relationship with Carla and vice versa, because we're, we're a unit now. And so my relationship with, with my wife, Carla, it, it's intrinsic to the relationship with Safira and how the three of us feed off each other and bounce off each other and grow from each other is just, it's, it's everything. <laughs> it's, it's just everything. And it, it, every day, you know, we just wake up just like so filled with, you know, we're only 21 months into it and we're just like, wow, there's just no sign of getting sick of this. <laughs> yeah. Know? And I think you, every parent, surely knows that it's just like you've never experienced the depth of love you just you know it's just it's mm. indescribable really mm-hmm. and beyond words i think mm-hmm. completely yeah hey johnny if you don't mind i i wanted to lead into a question that's a question that really for myself and i know is something i find that comes a lot up a lot for people that are in sort of the yoga and meditation community and um, you say in, in your book, which I had a little chuckle and a nod at, because uh, I could see so much of myself in it too. You said uh, there is a tendency of speakers, seekers of knowledge in the West to buy spiritual self-help or personal development books, read them for a few days, get a high from them, put them back on the bookshelf and eagerly await the next. And when we understand something on an intellectual level but do not put it into practice, we become susceptible to the delusion that we fully understand it. Um, and the I think we're all guilty of that at some point in time, but it really left me with a reflection of, you know, how in today's day and age do we honor tradition and lineage? Uh, You know, a lot from my travels and and my studies that are very much uh, anchored in really Vedic practices. Um, I've had a taste and that's probably all it is in reality of that relationship, that parampara, that, that relationship with teacher and, and lineage. And it's it's very hard to get in today's day and age. And I would just love your reflections and thoughts and on the value of tradition and how that can be very experienced and embodied in our world today, because it's, it's very difficult. Yes. The greatest way to honour tradition and the body of knowledge that gets passed on through tradition is embodiment. You know, this is the core of everything that I do because ultimately it is only through embodiment that every wish and hope for any master to their student comes alive, is, is, is fulfilled. The wish is fulfilled only when the student is truly liberated and elevated into the status of um, eligibility to pass the knowledge on. And so the beautiful tradition continues. So it's my perspective that the only way that we can truly honour tradition is by fulfilling its promise, fulfilling its um, its call to action through the ages, and um, the the way that we, we we truly experience this is by listening intently to the instruction of the master and you know i think that the this the the success that i have had in all of this journey is more so in being a student than a teacher because i know how to listen so intently and then just commit fully and wholeheartedly to the instruction and invariably the result was yielded like it becomes self-evident it's like oh okay now i understand why you asked me to do that 
and now I'm doing it, I see it. What next? <laughs> and make it as simple as possible, by the way. <laughs> when you tell me what next, can you please just tell me as simple as possible, just in a packet so I can just like always come back to it when I kind of forget. What next? Here you go. And this was the relationship that I had with my teachers and my relationship to the, to the beautiful uh, traditional lineage um, or lineages uh, that, that, I, that I, I take refuge in and, and draw upon the, the power of its wake. Because when we talk about tradition, what we're talking about is a path well-trodden that has done a lot of the heavy lifting for us that we can kind of slot into, you know, you've on a, a driving on a freeway, the, the, the easiest way to save petrol and put less wear and tear on the engine is to get behind a big semi trailer, the big truck, because they are doing all the hard work in breaking the winds and creating a, a beautiful wake of, of um, zero resistance for you to just kind of, effortlessly cruise behind without having to have your, your foot heavy on the accelerator, you know, and all of that. And so tradition is much the same. We are in the wake of history of thousands of years of practice being passed on from one master to student, master to student. And as time passes, that, that stream of knowledge becomes like a torrenting river where before we may have had to swim and now all we have to do is fall back into it and let it take us down the stream and relax and enjoy the, the, the entire process unfolding. It happens almost by itself. And when we realize this, a, a deep sense of gratitude, it naturally emerges. We're just like, Oh, thank goodness, because it's already hard enough as it is. <laughs> Imagine if we didn't have, all of the knowledge that had been laid out before us to, to assist us in guiding us to, to get to where we are now. And then all that's left to be done is just diligence and vigilance to the now, to the truth of our spirit and to, to continue honoring the, the highest expression of ourself and being compassionate when we, we notice the forgetfulness, when we slip into behaving in ways that are, are more reflective of a condition rather than a nature of the truth of who we are. And, and just honor that. And it's really as simple as that, but being ever vigilant, vigilance gives rise to illumination. The more vigilant we are in the present moment, the moment becomes illuminated and with illumination becomes increased awareness of all the layers of things that are taking place. And what we notice is that there is an elegant complexity, an orderliness to all the layers that if we try to kind of contain in our mind on some intellectual level, we just become overwhelmed and so, so disjointed and disconnected. The, the orderliness we, we are able to observe is that it emerges from a, a place of feeling, not a place of thinking. The orderliness correlates with a sensory experience of wholeness, completeness, and a desire to want to be a part of it, to be expressive of it, and to contribute to it. This is this underlying belonging thing that we were talking about. And, and then the more we is keep surrendering and being vigilant to the present moment, the more illumination there is and more awareness there is, there is more insight about the, the way in which things operate, the more artful we become in bringing ourselves into every moment of exchange, every relationship, every dynamic, where we are not only creating the opportunity for us to be expressive of our spirit, which is vital for our own well-being to thrive. It's you know as much a selfish pursuit as it is a selfless pursuit. But we notice that in doing so, we are we are nurturing everyone and everything that we're coming into contact with, and that then creates this beautiful exchange of reciprocity that enlivens the, and, and, and fulfills the promise, which is unity, which is interconnectedness, which is shared growth 
and shared awakening into ever states of, you know, mind-blowing expansion, deeper levels of perception of the nature of things correlating to greater capability to be an awesome human, to be a human that's relevant to as many humans as possible, which is what I think is at the deepest part of our soul the, 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 as a desire to be as relevant to the whole thing as possible. That, that's what gives rise to fulfillment. And I guess some the sense I'm picking up here too is that uh, can, very consistent embodying of very a very humble quality of studentship in a way, just literally living from that state. And, and, you know, coming back to the question of tradition and uh, I have no doubt you can relate to this. There's something indescribable about being in India and studying in India and being around masters and in whatever tradition and, and type we're speaking to here. And then you come back into daily life of the Western world and that can be sometimes a really challenging um, integration, if you will. Mm -hmm. I guess what my understanding from what you're saying is, is just that real um, commitment and, and um, consistency about showing up and embodying that studentship and the teachings and the things that you're learning and trusting in that process. Is that, am I digesting that? Absolutely, except for the last word, trusting in that process, because from the perspective of you, because I'm we're, we're, you and I are having a conversation, so I'm going to relate directly to you. We don't want to use the mechanism of trust because what that is, it, it, trust is like a, a, a crutch that doesn't allow us to put the full weight on our feet. You know, we use a crutch to kind of, to take the weight off something that we believe is needs a little bit of a break, right? There's no part of you that needs a break. <laughs> Although putting full weight on it might go, oh, this feels really, ah, you know, it might be uncomfortable. It's the kind of pain that the more you walk on it, the more it sort of works itself out. And so trust is like a, I don't really know it to be true, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's not the truth, because the truth is you do know. It's an intellectual crutch. It's, it's kind of like a, it, it, it's, it's the, last, the last little bit of letting go of the condition, the belief in powerlessness, the belief that I'm not who I know myself to be. It's, the, it's trust is the remnants of that it's like i'm ready to let go of trust and sit in the discomfort of the responsibility of claiming what i know mm. it's easier to resort to trust and kind of sit on top of the discomfort of claiming what we know and pretend we don't know but do it anyway and just stay small or we can let go of that and expand our awareness into the fullness of our being and go actually I know, but the knowingness freaks me out because it actually puts me in the driver's seat and I have to take full responsibility for what's going on right now. I have to, I have to commit. It means that I can no longer pretend <laughs> I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a knower. I, I am. Mm, and with that comes a great sense of responsibility, I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's the responsibility that scares, our, scares the pants off us. But this is, the, this is the next phase for so many people that have been doing this work for so long. We want to use, lose the vernacular of trust, hope, and faith because all of those suggest that we don't know, but we're going to just keep moving in the direction anyway. You do know. It's slightly noncommittal, isn't it? Yeah, but it's okay. They're, they're, they're important instruments. They're gateways. They're bridges. But how many times do you need to walk across the bridge? How many times does the universe need to reveal to you 
that you're on the right path, that every decision you've made is right, it's good, you're, you know, it's all unfolding. At one, what point are you going to look at fear for what it is? It's a sensation that's happening inside the chest that is being triggered by existing in a world that is so completely separate from the way in which we biologically evolved. It's separated. It's, and we are invariably going to have an experience of dissonance, distortion, discomfort in our bodies as a result of living so disconnected. But we know this. We actually know this. We've intellectually understood it. We've, we've, we've read about it enough times. We've sit and reflected upon it. We've even wrote it in our diaries. We've had conversations with our friends about it. At what point does it cease becoming an intellectual concept and move into, okay, I understand this. I need to now start living that notion. What does that look like? Okay, it means I've got to connect with the discomfort of what it means to be alive right now in the world. I need to accept as a reality, not just as an idea, that a lot of my discomfort is about the way in which we all are living. <laughs> and what can I do to take responsibility for this to ensure that I'm doing as much to fortify my nervous system in a way that enables it to be expressive of the, of the deeper truth of who I am? And how can I be ever vigilant to that? How can I remain steady and consistent in my efforts to sustain connection to this? And that requires a little bit of intellectualization every now and then where we have to bring back a concept, affirm it intellectually, and then move into the embodied sensory experience of it. We transition back into it. We forget it, we transition back into it. We forget it, we transition back into it. This is the practice. And this is essentially what the golden sequence is. It's just a, a really simplified procedure by which we bring ourselves back into the truth of our loving hearts when we have forgotten it. That's what the entire book's about in its most simplest terms. And, um, and so, you know, the, the mechanisms of trust, faith, and hope are, uh, are important when we are truly in despair or we truly don't see and we truly don't know and we do feel hopeless, we do feel untrusting, we do feel, um, you know, we, we have a lack of belief in the benevolence of the universe, the intelligence of the universe, that it's truly conspiring to our greatest experience of happiness and fulfillment. We do have to employ them. We do have to use our intellectual rationale that, that knows this somehow, that's been, it's been imprinted upon it somehow. But know that when we're employing it, that's all we're doing is we're just being intellectual. Yeah, that discernment makes a lot of sense uh, and mm. certainly feels very valuable. And I always feel like I've just been sprung in some way. <laughs> but it's prompted me to think as I'm listening and absorbing, is there someone in your life or has there been along this path for you that has been instrumental and a really great mentor and teacher for you? maybe yeah someone currently right now who is shaping you because that relationship to our teachers and those that keep us anchored in our practices is obviously tremendously important and invaluable uh i definitely carla and safira they you know hold me account hold me accountable to my most highest self uh, in, in a very active way it's and it's all action based and you know that's all a, a, a teacher could ever hope for in a student is to to know that and they are they are my two greatest teachers at the moment i've had i've had a handful of of great teachers at different stages in my life of which most of them have um, encouraged me to not spend 
any uh, one second more time around them than was necessary. Don't hang around me too, <laughs> any longer than you need to. Get out there. Get out there. So, um, you know, life is, life is the Buddha. The, the whole universe, everything. The, the, that's the great realisation um, that sincere studentship delivers is eventually you realise, ah, because all the teacher the human teacher is always telling you is that where is the lesson in it? Where is the lesson in it? You know, a good teacher is always encouraging you to look within and see the lesson in it. Where's the knowledge? Where's the insight? Where's the understanding? And, you know, I listened to that and started looking for it everywhere and seeing my teachers in everything, everything. And all I did was exercise vigilance and diligence to detecting where the wisdom is where is the wisdom there it is and eventually it just it's always there it's like okay it's established great <laughs> and that's what practice does that's what practice does and that's all i did so just you know like a professional athlete practice 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 <laughs> and then eventually okay good i can hit this tennis racket hit this tennis ball really well <laughs> if only i could hit a tennis ball really well uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they're essentially like guides just guiding and reflecting back at you in the in the in the you know the tradition of well let's talk about the vedic tradition where the word guru comes from it's a Sanskrit word. Guru means darkness. Guru means remover. A guru, first and foremost, is a function of nature before it is a person. And a, an individual that has refined their own capacity to remove their own ignorance makes himself a candidacy, a, a candidate, a person that has learned how to remove their own ignorance makes himself a candidate for nature's intelligence to acquire their nervous system so that they can fulfill that function for nature. And so being a guru is more about being a function of nature. Nature is constantly seeking to illuminate itself to itself. And we humans are a part of nature. We're a very extraordinary, um, sophisticated expression of nature's intelligence in, in, a, in a physical form. And um, nature requires our individual experiences to understand itself. And what it seeks to do is to express its intelligence through the varying conditions of our nervous systems. And there are those individuals that recognize this and um, refine their nervous systems very specifically so that their nervous systems can be acquired by certain functions of nature so they can be that in service of nature. And that's what I was instructed to do, to, to refine my nervous system very deliberately to be acquired in, in, a, in a very specific way by nature's intelligence. So a very specific thing happens through me. Um, and that's all that really happens through me as a result of it. It's just a constant thing through the deliberate establishing of relationship to first the notion then secondly to the experience. We move into the experience of it and then over time we just get out of the road <laughs> and allow that thing to happen. It's incredibly beautiful. Yeah, so that's the, yeah, it is, right? And very, it makes you go, oh, okay, right. <laughs> well, if that's all that needs to happen, well then, uh, you know, I'd like to do that. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to be acquired by nature's intelligence to serve in, in the most meaningful and relevant way. And there are many different ways for that to occur and there are many different ways that that is being expressed. And all that's required is just to gently lend your curious inquiring mind into that final level of feeling. You know, what, 
what is it that I desire most to be expressive of inside myself? Because nature communicates to us through desire. Our desires are actually the sweet whisperings of nature's intelligence, gently coercing us towards where it would like us to go and how it would like us to unfold. And so all we need to do is stop hijacking our desires and using that energy to try and acquire greater status, validation, you know, instant gratification, soothing, and all of that, and, and utilize it as the mechanism to orientate ourselves towards the most fulfilling experience that we can have. It requires some work in that, confronting the condition. And this is why I, I am a, a, you know, a huge, um, a, uh, what do you call it? Um, endorser of meditation uh, because meditation at the front gate opens us up to sufficient internal space to be able to accurately discern the difference between the truth of a, of a, of a, a, a creative impulse of nature's intelligence moving through our nervous system as different to the impulse of fear and anxiety that can hijack the the impulse of creativity and utilize that for its own for its own purposes which is generally to control to maintain the status quo and to um, create a, a false sense of security and what we want to do is you know, as quickly as possible, identify where that's happening. Because our, what we believe our pursuits of um, acquiring is, is somehow making us safe. Actually, it's, 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 it's making us move in the direction of the most unstable place that we could possibly be. Trying to hold on to the ever-repeating known is the most unstable place that we can be because the nature of our nature is that we are perpetually unfolding. It's not static. Our steady ground, stable ground is in fact not steady, steady ground. It is the, the, the comfort of being able to surrender into the motion of our being, like falling into a river and letting it take us. We find our greatest level of security when we can just surrender into that emotion and let it unfold without trying to hold on to it, without trying to hold on to it. And that's very much the same as in Ayurvedic wisdom as well. Everything's constantly in flux and sur just surrendering to that change and being in rhythm with that is most harmonious, if you will. Yeah. On a more personal level, Johnny, and take this question as you will, what does life living in alignment look like for you? Open and sensitive to um, my own need in any moment, which might be as simple as needing to go to the toilet <laughs> and making sure I listen to that, <laughs> to having a glass of water, to listening very intently to what it is that's been asked of me of my wife or my mother or my friends or, you know, um, to listening intently to the frustrated cry of my baby girl or the giggle of her. Being in line, alignment is finding balance between my internal resource to to be open and attentive first. And if I am depleted in any way to tend to that, to tend to my, 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 my sense of, I don't have a huge amount to give here. I'm, I'm going to be limited. And I'm, I'm anticipating that there is going to be a greater demand than the supply. So I'm going to go and top it up. And generally the way that I do that is go and have a meditation <laughs> or lie on my back on the grass and look up at the trees, breathe, feel the earth, look at the clouds and just one, you know, in wonderment, just take a moment, reconnect and go, all right, ah, lovely. Generally it's fatigue that gets the better of me. 
you know, because life's just so demanding. Yes. Even in our, you know, uh, uh, enforced isolation, you know, you know, there's always so much to do. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's being aligned is, is putting things really in, in their proper place of priority. You know, what's, what's priority here to continue doing all these things or just stopping meditating, connecting. And then once I've done that, you know, just being really clear about what's expected of me, what the demands are and how best I can meet them. And then not beating myself up when I don't tick all the boxes because it's all fine. <laughs> you know, we'll live another day. The world's not going to implode because I didn't get all the things on my list done. It's fine. Totally. Yeah. Our lives depend more on our beingness rather than our doingness at the moment. And it's so easy to forget that the most simple practices are those which can be the fastest and most profound to bring us back into that state of alignment, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, the, the fastest reset that I know is a 20-minute meditation. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Johnny, what is your favourite sound? Uh, at the moment, it's <laughs> uh, my daughter's voice, specifically her, like, guttural laugh. <laughs> it's the sweetest. It just causes an involuntary gush of, like, all the good stuff flowing into my heart. You know, to hear her joy, it just, yeah. That's my favourite sound. And what's your greatest high in life? The middle, the middle road. The, the, the sweet balance between being and doing and the, the, the connection to the sustainability of that knowing it's a continuum, it's not going to run out, it's only going to increase. I never ride the highs to its heights because it, it invariably will self-regulate. Nature is always looking for the, for, the, for the middle road, for the sustainable middle road. It doesn't operate in extremes. It fluctuates into extremes in order to balance and correct itself or to be expressive of, a, of an imbalance. And so... I am not ever looking for a high. I've, I've, I've aspired to things um, and, and, and reached those milestones and experienced great highs only to discover that it's, uh, it's followed by a tumbling back to some baseline. And, you know... I, I, I let go of the idea of pursuing a, a string of highs, like moments in life, like beads on a necklace. I'm not interested in having, you know, lying on my deathbed and reflecting on my life as a beaded necklace. Here is this event, and 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 here is this event, here is this event that I'm proud of. And in between all of those events and my relentless pursuit to acquire that and, you know, completely ignoring mine or the well-being of others, I just, you know, relentlessly pursued all of those things and, you know, I achieved them and they came and they went and I don't know. (laughs) I don't think I've quite worked it out yet. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not that guy. And I just think, you know, my fortunate stars (laughs) that... I was able to realize this at a relatively young age, having had the opportunity to achieve some things that were some things that appeared important to me at a young age. Um, and I ticked those boxes and went, oh, okay, that didn't really do it. All right, well, what, what else? And, um, you know, what, what's become very clear to me is that while ever I just, while ever I have a, a, a simple, innocent, relationship with myself that enables me to be expressive of whatever it is that emerges in this moment and that I can feel fearless in expressing that um, everything is fantastic. (laughs) One of my teacher's teachers talks about uh, the greatness that comes with being in a state of neutrality and being dispassionate 
so trying to maintain almost a neutral state uh, mm. continued to come back to that place, which was almost a little confusing when I heard it the first time, but as it's marinated, it's starting to make more sense. As you say, the yeah, highs can be followed by, followed by deep lows. I think that what you're saying is perhaps a, a cousin of what I'm saying, but I wouldn't ever describe myself as dispassionate nor neutral. Mm. I'm certainly not in any way trying to neutralize my spontaneous and instinctive response to life. I am what I am. I respond how I respond. And that is to say that I become enraged at injustice where I feel a sense of rage. I am still deeply hurt by, um, you know, the way in which we can behave towards each other sometimes uh, and all the full gamut of human emotions. And um, I think that there is, and not to contradict your teacher's teaching by any way, but, you know, we're having a conversation about it, so I'll give my opinion for what it's worth, um, that, you know, there is what I described as, you know, being able to sort of ride life in that middle ground is a natural byproduct of allowing nature to take its course. I think there is a danger in trying to be like that, to try and bring about a state of equilibrium because then we go into denial about what it is that we actually are feeling. I arrived here not by denying or resisting any force inside of me by actually just giving full life and expression to it. And what I find is that when I exhaust my, um, my mental and emotional inquiry, you know, and I am expressive of that, you know, particularly when I look into the past and the things that I may have carried with me um, and give air to that and, and release it, what naturally happens after that release is just a settling settling in the Vedic tradition it's referred to as anand bliss it's referred to as that beautiful gentle it's not elated it's not spiky you know it doesn't rise and fall it's just the constant continuum of the knowingness of being it's 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 a much deeper richer quality of happiness if we're going to describe it in that category that is, is sustainable and nourishing and is not dependent on anything outside of ourselves for it because it just is. It's our nature. It's just the awareness of our nature. And I, at no point, am ever interested in trying to force anything that is naturally happening in me on an emotional or mental level um, to try and sustain that state because it's just forced. It, it, it's, it's counteractive to how you actually have the experience. Having the experience is really letting go and just allowing it to emerge. And that we're just required to peel back the layers that obstruct that. And so, um, you know, as an instruction, as a teacher, I always say, you know, we, we don't want to try and be neutral because I actually don't think that's possible. <laughs> we can experience a degree of e e equilibrium in, a, in our hearts and still have an impassioned response to, you know, the, the violation of uh, the sensibility of our humanity. Yeah, and that makes, that makes a lot of sense, Johnny. And I think the, the weaving, what I'm taking from you and then this concept that I had learned, you know, it really, I think they actually do harmonise quite well because my understanding of that teaching was that it was more about how we could feel, as you say, feel the feelings and ride the waves of life, but how, for example, our meditation practice can actually enable us to more quickly come back to our true nature and, and move through the emotion and come back to that yeah. state of more resilience, which I guess has been the, the word neutrality has been used, but it's more, as you say, that you're coming back to that baseline, that true nature within ourselves and how yeah. we find that resilience to ride those waves and come back to that place. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah, ah, totally. We're saying the same thing. I'm just, you know, you know, probably just highlighting a thing that you may not be making reference to at all, but something that I notice 
in the pursuit of higher states that there can be a literal interpretation of certain teachings that actually um, becomes a blocker or inhibitor of us doing the work that's necessary to get to the state that's being described by um, a master or something, for example. And a lot of the nuanced how-to stuff um, becomes lost in translation of these teachings. And it sounds like you've got a total grasp on that, and that's wonderful. Mm. I'm glad that we were able to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what I think, and probably it's my lack of articulation maybe initially, but what you were saying very much, I think, highlights very much the same kind of message and theme. Yeah, yeah, very much. Mm. Um, Johnny, have you got anything you would like to share with myself or the listener about what you might have coming up or if you want to share about any trainings or anything in the pipeline at all? Yeah, we've got a lot of things happening. Uh, we're going to be announcing soon the, the opening of our centre up in Mullumbimby, which is on the um, northern New South Wales coast near Byron Bay. Um, and at this place, my wife and I will be um, offering a whole gamut of wonderful programs and workshops um, that some will be made digital and be made available online, um, including the you know a, a, a real deep dive into the Golden Sequence teaching. Um, so if you're somebody that's read that book and, and want to kind of take it to the next level, at some point we'll be offering you know a much deeper dive workshop into that of how not only it can be implemented into your life, but how you can actually share it with others in a constructive way. Um, One Giant Mind uh, and the Teacher Training Academy every three months is offering a new cohort. There has never been a greater time than now for people to be empowered with the knowledge of how to teach others to have the beautiful connection with themselves. And, um, you know, if you're somebody that feels called to do something really meaningful, you're a passionate meditator, um, I really encourage you to check out the training on the website. There's there's a bunch of videos there that sort of lay it out. And uh, it's a very comprehensive training that will have you ready within about 12 weeks, 13 weeks um, to step out and start, you know, filling the greatest need of the time. uh, what else can I tell you? There's, there's, there are a lot of exciting events that are going to happen out of One Giant Mind uh, over the next uh, eight weeks in response to uh, the COVID-19 phenomenon that's happening around the world right now. Um, in my opinion, is a really exciting opportunity for um, a mass collective awakening. Um, and you know, a lot of what we're going to be doing in that period of time is supporting the sustainability of of this awakening so that the crisis itself doesn't become the the infrastructure of the awakening because when the crisis leaves, you know, generally the awakening goes away. You know, it collapses back on itself again. We go back into that forgetfulness. We want to ensure that whatever awakening occurs during this beautiful crisis um, that it sustains itself and then we can generate some profound change as a result of that new awakening that occurs in this time. So we're going to be um, doing that. I don't know how soon this podcast is coming out, whether this is actually going to be relevant in your timing of things, but uh, if it is, um, you can find out about what one giant one is going to be up to over the next couple of months by uh, checking us out on Facebook and Instagram, all of the, the normal places which we haven't been very active on for a long time, but we're going to breathe some life into it. <laughs> I'll link everybody to your website and to the One Giant Mind website and all the channels and that kind of thing too. And I have to say, Johnny, I really appreciate it in your book, um, The Practical Exercises. I think that that's such a great addition, you know, to, as you say in the book, you know, we can intellectualise content, but giving the practical exercises, it's like it's just that seed, planting that seed to starting to embody, you know, the knowledge that you are that you are taking in and i even found the initial just reading of the practical exercises created such reflection you know mm. and it's simple it's not intimidating work here it's just really simple but thank you so much for oh, that for feedback yeah it's always great to hear but you know you write this thing you're like is anyone gonna read this thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's always uh, to, to hear 
Yeah, and the podcast as well, the One Giant Mind podcast um, that you recorded has been tremendously enriching. I have listened to every episode and I highly recommend it to whoever's listening to this now to, to check it out. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Johnny. It's been the greatest pleasure to, to have you and, and to have all your wisdom and insight and to be able to share that with everybody. My pleasure. Thank you. If this episode was of value to you and your life, please subscribe. And if you can think of someone who would benefit from this dialogue, please do them a favor and send it their way. If you feel called, hop on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. This is the best way to get these conversations into the ears and hearts of our wider community, to those who need it most. You can find me at amyelandry.com or over on Instagram at amyelandry. May we all move a little closer to a life living in alignment.